it's all over now, baby blue. by Chris Burden. W for war, C for combat, B for bomb, N for nuclear, F for fallout, M for mutant. Hey, hey, hey! WCPN FM and on. Have a nice day. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Michael Zadorian. Michael, welcome to Living Writers. Thanks so much for having me, T. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, it's great to see you. It's great to meet you. Um, we've got your latest novel um, on the table with us. Hot off the press from Akashic. Um, it is just three weeks old. Which is pretty exciting, isn't it? It is. Or, or how is it? Don't let me. We're oh. <laughs> being yeah. questions. Here yeah, we go. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be like this. You're just putting words in my mouth. What did you sign up so for? So exciting. Um, no, it, it is exciting. Of course it is. Uh, you know, that never, this is my third novel, and it, it does not stop getting exciting. And also for me, anxiety producing, of 
of course, too. You know, but uh, it's always it's always a thrill to to have your book come out. How can it not be? And and the book is beautiful music, right? Um, and it's a it's a it's a it's a love it's a beautiful cover. Even the book is just one of these books where I feel like. Um, it feels like a book that should be in the world, and it's just like one that Good. I think people will will um, find pleasure in as well. And a quick thanks to Susanna uh, for um, Rush sending a copy uh, so it could get um, into my hands as well. Really appreciate it. And we've got your other um, amazing books on the table here with us, too. We've got The Leisure Seeker, um, which which folks may be familiar in the, the novel form, or they may have seen it recently. In a film. Um, you know, Sony Pictures Classics. Yeah. Yes, with Helen Mirren and Donald Sutherland. We're going to talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. I, <laughs> if you're I'm ready. Um, and then Secondhand. Um, my on, first novel. The, the first novel. And... Uh, who is this one out with 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 Norton? With w. Norton. W. Norton. Awesome. Yes. Norton's always. And then the Lost Tiki Palaces of Detroit. Out. It's it part of the Made in Michigan series. Right. Wayne State University Press. Yeah, my story uh, collection. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So we've yeah. got all these books on the table with us. We'll see, we do. We'll see where we go. And before we get into the the meat of the conversation, I'll read your bio. Okay. So, and we'll go from there. All right. <laughs> if that's if that's good with everyone. They're, they're, they're... And we've got Stephanie behind the glass. Here we go. Michael Zadorian is the author of the critically praised The Leisure Seeker, now a film starring Helen Mirren and Donald Sutherland, released by Sony Pictures Classics this year. Zadorian is a recipient of a Kresge Artist Fellowship in the Literary Arts, the Columbia University Aeneid Literary Award, the Great Lakes Colleges Association New Writers Award, and the Michigan Notable Book Award. His other books are Secondhand, a novel, and the story collection The Lost Tiki Palaces of Detroit. His fiction has appeared in the Literary Review, Beloit Fiction Journal, American Short Fiction, Witness, Great Lakes Review, and the North American Review. He lives with his wife in the Detroit area. All that is true. All that is true. And I realized as we were talking, we covered some of it. So now people, they know. They've got a list of the books in mind and uh, can follow along. Um, we are, we are off to a great we start. We are off to a great start. And today you're going to be at Literati Bookstore. That's correct. Very soon. Um, and you'll be reading there. And it's the, the book launch in Ann Arbor. Right. Exactly. Seven o'clock at Literati tonight. Ah, Good, good, fun times, and um, so and today we'll get to hear part of of beautiful music, well, a little part, and right. um, so we'll stay tuned for that, everyone. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the origin story of beautiful music, Michael. Um, was it a song that started this off for you, or how did this book come to being? Because it took, if I'm understanding this correctly, it took some years in the making. I think so. I, I mean, I think it did. It didn't take uh, too many years to write, but I think it was something that I had been thinking about for a long time. And, and I, I loved the idea of a kind of coming of age story through music. And it, you know, so I, I really just started started thinking about that, started thinking about when I when I was growing up in Detroit in the 70s and how music was such an important thing to me. And it really, I don't know, I, I just really started writing down everything I could think of about those times, my fears and anxieties and what I was listening to at the time. Because the 70s, such, such, um, 
a time of change in Detroit as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, after I started thinking about all the music, then I, then it, it occurred to me what was, you know, everything that was going on in Detroit in those years, you know, after the summer of 67 with all the violence and unrest. And so that was really kind of when the, uh, the books started to coalesce. I think, I think I was thinking about there was all this music in the air, all this, all these great iconic radio stations happening, but there was also all this sort of, uh, you know, kind of rage and fear and, and sort of ugliness in the air as well. And, and they, they kind of, where they kind of collided is sort of where I feel like the book kind of started to, to happen really. And for this, when you were writing down these memories and, and starting with music and, and but going for the feelings of that time, um, where does that fit in with your process as a writer? Because um, in a free press article, it said that now you are, you, you've moved to full-time writing. You, you used to keep a job where you would work in the afternoons at, right. um, uh, as a copy. A copywriter, copywriter. yes. Um, So would this be something where, for your process, do you... Do you write every morning? Because that's when I read that, where you'd arrive for work at from one o'clock onward. I thought, oh, is Michael at home writing in the morning? Like, do you have like, that was exactly and- that's exactly what I was doing. So I would. Uh, yeah, it was a it was really a great arrangement for a very long time. I just had to be in work uh, at twelve thirty and I would have my mornings free to, to write fiction. And then I would come and actually make a living in the afternoons. <laughs> So and beautiful music is very it's you've said it's very autobiographical even though it is fiction fictionalized. Right. Absolutely. Could you talk about why you made that choice like maybe not because you had lived in a similar like you're very similar to the character Danny. Yeah. So why what did fiction allow you that you wanted um versus maybe writing it as creative nonfiction? Yeah. No, I for me it was I, I wanted, you know, this character kind of emerged, which I think in many ways is like me. I mean, I was sort of a, I was sort of a scared, uh, anxious little kid and worried about everything all the time. And, you know, Danny is certainly much the same way, but I think there, there are, there are things too that I, that I stole from other kids, uh, things that happened in my school. Also, I think, um, in in some ways the character of Danny is is someone I could have been had I not had a few breaks a few things go my way which uh which doesn't happen a lot to Danny in the book you know so so there's definitely some autobiographical elements to it a lot of them and for instance I I just thought, well, I I know this high school, and I thought, well, should I come up with a fictional high school? And I thought, why? I'm just going to use Redford High School, which is where I, I attended, which is no longer there. There is now a, a Myers Thrifty Acres <laughs> in its place. Uh, but uh, so I wanted to use that, and I thought you know, why not that neighborhood? Why not even? And then, you know, then I just thought, why not my house? And, and, uh, so in some ways it might, uh, 
I don't know. I don't I don't feel like it's cheating or anything. It's like I know that house. I knew that neighborhood. I knew that school. So it just seemed logical to to uh, build the book around that, you know, at least the, the physical basis of that. And then then other things like that could be, you know, are, are highly fictionalized or never, you know, never happened. It's just, uh, you know, what the direction I felt the book should take was um for the fictional like the the what you what fiction allowed you to do like the like the fictionalized highly fictionalized parts that you just mentioned what would be an example of that are you able to cuz now cuz now there's a sense of like what's m- maybe some of the more direct connections to the autobiography Sure. I mean, um, in the course of the book, uh, Danny, you know, loses someone in his family. And that is, uh, you know, that was something, you know, that was fictionalized. That was and that was something that it just what would happen to this this character. I mean, uh, Danny's you know, he has a really strong bond with his father and, uh, and for him to lose that bond is, you know, is devastating for him. And, and that was, you know, something that felt like it felt important to happen in the book. I think he, he, you know, it's about his sort of journey to basically finding himself, finding an identity that, that works for him. And for, for Danny, music becomes that thing. It becomes his, his sanctuary, his, you know, kind of safe place, but it also becomes a source of power for him too. And, a, and, a, and, a, uh, something that gives him identity. And so speaking of identity, was it, do you think it was important to you in the drafting of the, the manuscript to have this loss for Danny happen? Because it also definitely separated you from the character in some ways. So then Danny could become more Danny. I, I, that's a, that's a really valid point. And that might be exactly what I was doing. I mean, for me, writing is often, I, you know, I like to sort of see what happens and that for me with him is, you know, I did that. I, I'm not even entirely sure of why I did it, yeah. but it, so it, it very well may have been that uh, it's like, okay, this is, this isn't going to be me, but I have to let this character be whoever he is going to be. And that very well may have been a, a way to have that happen. Because I know as a reader, there's a, the moments when there there's so many tender moments. Like it's lovely when his dad is taking him to Driver's Ed, like trying. Because I don't know if we've said this yet, but Danny is just entering his first year of high school, right? So this is like this transformational time for him, absolutely. Um, and so his dad is thinking, you know, you need to go and do this, and. And Danny's actually he doesn't want resistant. To. Yeah, yeah. Unlike the usual team, <laughs> right. yeah, he uh, he is like, no, I don't need, I don't need friends. I don't need to uh, learn how to drive. And his dad's like saying, yes, you do, and you're going to. And he's like, he's mad about it. And uh, and uh, you know that's a, a source of friction between him and his father because his father is trying to teach him how to go out and be in the world and to be with other people and talk to other people. And, and Danny is uh, very happy to build model cars in his basement and, and uh, listen to CKLW uh, all day. And uh, yeah, so his father is constantly worried about him being okay and 
getting out into the world and having friends and, and all those things that should be pretty normal for a 14-year-old boy. Well, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, let's hear some of, some of beautiful music. Okay. Your latest novel, Michael Zadorian, is here with us today on Living Writers. Um, we'll take a short break and we'll be back. Kick out the jails, brothers and sisters! Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did today. Michael Zadorian is here in the studio. His novel, Beautiful Music, out now with Akashic Press, um, based in Brooklyn. Yes. Um, so, Michael, thanks for choosing the songs for today's program. You're welcome. I, that's always fun to me. So why this one? <laughs> well, this one, um, basically, Kick Out the Jams uh, echoes through the entire book. I mean, it is, it's in the first 10 pages, and it's in the second to last page, the penultimate page. Uh, and uh, it's just such a, it, it's such an important song for Detroit. It winds up being a very important song to, to Danny. It's where he is first exposed to actual rock and roll music and he is nowhere near ready for it <laughs> when he hears it. And, uh, but it's a it's a song that just has has echoes through the through the entire book, and it's such a good song anyway. And I like listening to it. Uh, just uh, I was telling you that uh, sometimes I read a section from the book where Danny is, uh, you know, sort of exposed to the MC5 for the first time, which is a little ahead of his time actually. So it's it's just infamous by the time he encounters it. It's and it's it's always been an infamous song in Detroit, but. Uh, so it's it's a it's a really important song and and one of those those songs that that is very much a part of Detroit rock and roll lore. When did you first hear it? You know something. Here's speaking of more autobiographical things. I did hear it in a classroom when a uh, a boy brought it in. This is a scene in the for book. show and tell for show and tell. Yes, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the in uh, in my life it happened. They played that version that you played, which is the the sort of uh, the, the whatever What's the radio version. It's the radio <laughs> friendly version of it, where they say brothers and sisters instead of uh, an, uh, a a naughty word, and. Uh, so it was even that was enough to shock me beyond, uh, you know, it was incredible. It was so loud and so raucous and so scary that it was just like, oh, my God, you know, it, it sort of blew my little, you know, 12 year old mind. <laughs> and uh, I so I was 
you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, probably that song kind of defined rock and roll for me. And uh, I was nowhere ready for it either when I first heard it. And uh, and even now, I still love that song. And, and it's, you know, it's it's amazing. It's nice that the MC5 has gotten their, their due as, you know, basically the godfathers of punk music. Thanks for choosing it for today. Oh, well, and, good. But I mean, how could, you not, how could you not? I mean, with us talking about beautiful music, yeah. right? like how could you not? Um, well, do you mind reading some sure. so that we could, everyone could take a I listen? I will read from, there are various, the, the book jumps around in time a bit and not that much though. It starts off though with a short section in 1969 and sort of two years after the 67 rebellion. And then it jumps forward, I believe, to 1973. But I'm going to read the part, a part of uh, a section called The Hits of 69. Yeah, Michael, I, I just wanted to say I appreciate, too, that you said the um, the rebellion um, instead of riot. Or um, I think that's maybe because being from Detroit, you also have a reason for saying using that word because I think words matter, obviously. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and it's also important, too, because, you know, the, the it's described it takes place in the 70s. So every time, you know, that summer is mentioned, it's referred to as the riots. So, it, you know, so it's in the book because, you know, that that's, was that that's was what the, people would, would. That's what they would have said. Yeah. So. This, uh, the hits of 69. A busy signal. That's all I hear again and again. It's the fifth time I've called. My index finger starts to get sore around the cuticle from all the dialing. I'm calling CKLW's phone number. Luckily, it's not long distance or I'd be in big trouble with my parents. Though it could be long distance since CKLW is a Canadian radio station and I'm in Detroit. But I don't think it is. Either way, I don't know where I got it in my head to call them, but now that the idea is there, I can't get it out. My mother's in the other room, and she hasn't started wondering yet what I've been doing on the phone for so long. She has one of her shows on, and it's pretty loud. Lucky for me, but I still keep getting a busy signal. On the ninth try, cuticle red and aching, I finally get through. After three rings, a woman picks up and says, CKLW request line, can you hold for a moment? Of course I can. I'm thrilled. Over the line, I can hear the disc jockey, Ed Mitchell, announcing the song In the Year 2525 by Zager and Evans. The song starts. It sounds tinny and staticky through the phone line, nowhere near as good as on my Corsonic transistor radio. After a couple of minutes, I start to panic thinking that the operator has forgotten all about me. But then someone answers. His voice is so low and clear and deep that it seems to exist on a different wavelength altogether. There is nothing tinny or staticky about it. I'm actually speaking to the disc jockey himself. Okay, what do you want to hear? He says in a growl that sounds so very familiar to me. I can't speak, having suddenly stumbled into a world where adults care about what I want. Hello? Is he mad? I don't want DJ Ed Mitchell to be mad. He's going to hang up, so I push the words out as best I can. Uh, I want to hear A Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash, I say. Okay, wasn't sure if there was anyone there. Now look, I'm going to record your request, then we're going to play it on the air later. Is that cool? I nod. So it's cool? Yes, I say, realizing that nodding at the phone is not a good idea. 
trying to make up for my mistake. I muster up my energy and yell, Yeah! All right, says DJ Ed. He's an adult who likes it when I yell. That's good. Say it just like that. Just say, hey, Ed Mitchell, then tell me your name, your age, and say the song you want to hear. Lots of enthusiasm. Got it? I think so. Okay, are you ready? And go. I mess it up, of course. I forget to say, hey, Ed Mitchell, and I forget to say my name, too. You got to get it right this time, or I have to go, he says, and I can tell that he means it. Get ready. One, two, three, go. I take a deep breath and spit it out fast. Hey, Ed Mitchell, my name is Danny Zemsky. I'm 10 years old, and I want to hear A Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash. All right, he he roars. He is happy with me. I have pleased DJ Ed Mitchell. Thanks, Danny. Good job. You'll be on the air in a little while. Then the line goes dead. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Employing my DJ voice. <laughs> Yeah, and um, well, and it's so good that we get to meet Danny, a ten-year-old Danny. Um, why and and so gentle um, and and sweet. Why was it important to start there at ten? Do you I, think? You know something? I wanted to start it there. There's a, more of that section. I, I think I wanted to show him in in those years after the summer of seventy or of sixty-seven. And his mother is protecting him. She's not letting him go outside. He is, I I think it's sort of, uh, you know, illustrated how sheltered he kind of is and, and, and essentially how sheltered he's happy being, you know, really. And, and I also wanted it to take place. Yes. Very close to after the 67 rebellion i i i wanted it still to be felt in a in a more acute way and to 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 show the the white people moving out the fear of his mother and his mother is really kind of the 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 mouthpiece to a lot of uh, you know a lot of the negative things he's hearing and uh so it felt it felt important to to be there and and also uh that was that was also i believe when uh kick out the jams came out too so it was so it it seemed important and when you were drafting this michael was that was that sort of one of the starting points for you or did you start somewhere else with when this was starting to when you realized it was becoming its own thing. Book. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I probably, when I started thinking about it, I was, uh, excuse me, a little LaCroix there. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I, I started to write scenes just, uh, sometimes I will do that. I will just write certain scenes that I, I think this would be good in here. And even before I know sort of the, uh, the, 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 whatever the, the line of the book and, uh, and where things are going to, what's going to happen, where things are going to land. But, uh, it's important to, to just write what I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting at the time and what, what's important to me. And so that scene was very important to me. And it's, and when, when you say that, what's, um, like it's vivid, it's something that it comes into your consciousness when you're at your writing table or, or place 
And so you don't think, oh, I'm going to just, I'll come back to it another time. You just go with it is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. If I, if it just occurs to me right there, I'll just, I'll just write it. And even if I'm, even if I'm deep in the middle of a third draft or whatever, if, if something comes to me, I've always found it better to, to just write it down while I'm thinking of it. And, and it's, it's nice too, because sometimes, uh, if you're working on something with, you know, an after, yeah, if you are on a third or fourth draft or whatever, you really start to know the geography of your book, and you you know when when things are when something's missing, when there's maybe too much of something there, and so that's always a really interesting part to me. And it's like I'm working on something new now, and there's there's been a scene that's been kind of nagging at me a little. And I'm realizing it's like it's, you know, I, I realize that I have to write it. And, and it may may or may not end up in the book. I have a feeling it might. But, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things where you have to do your writerly due diligence and and write what needs to be, what feels like it needs to be written, and then judge later as to whether or not it, it has a place in the uh, the grand scheme of the book. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe it also sounds like not taking for granted that you can get back to it because it might be exactly. here nagging you, right? right? But it might disappear. Yeah, and I and I mean that's not to say sometimes I haven't just forced myself to write something and, and it's like there is nothing coming here, but uh, I'm gonna make something happen and I'm gonna write something and uh, I'm a big believer in just start writing and and see where things end up. Is that something that you got from Christopher Leland, like at Wayne State University, or something that you had even as a young writer? I think, uh, you know, I think it was just something I, I just sort of, uh, adopted. I just thought I, I can't, I, I didn't always have the option to wait for inspiration or whatever. I think I do have probably a very Midwestern and dare I say factory town, uh, uh, you know, approach to writing just because it's like, I, I'm not waiting for the, the, the muse to, to, uh, uh, you know, give me some sort of butterfly kiss, uh, I, you know, on my ear or whatever. I just sit at my desk and I, some days I just have to beat my head against the computer, but I just, I write something. And sometimes I write things that feel like crap. It's like, this is pure garbage what I'm writing here, but I'm going to write my three pages or whatever today. And, and a lot of times though, that stuff that I think is garbage winds up being good or being helpful or answering some other question that's been happening in the book. And a lot of times those things that you think are, Oh, this is pure genius. Uh, you know, that that's winds up being the crap, you know, uh, that's the stuff that like, Oh yeah, you are really pleased with yourself uh, during this, you know? So you, you just never know. And I, I guess, uh, you know, and so that's why I just keep going and, and see where it takes me. We'll take a short break and then we'll come back today on the program. Michael Zadorian is here. His novel, Beautiful Music. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got stuff behind the glass. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Michael Zadorian is here in the studio. Beautiful music on the table with us, just really fresh off the press. Um, yes. We were mentioning it's with um, uh, Akashic Press out of Brooklyn, but this is a book that is like deeply Midwestern. Absolutely. Um, it and, really and is. And very, very Detroit-oriented. And so it was it was really fun and thrilling that they were, they completely got the book. It was such a, that's one of those things that, you know, you dream of as a writer. You write something, you send it off to places, and you hope someone, you honestly, you need someone to truly connect with it, because that's the only way something is going to get published, other than, you know, doing yourself and so it was uh you know actually the 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 book it was passed around a bit you know and uh, not that many places but we were starting to really just get a weird vibe from some of the larger publishers and my agent uh he just said you know i think we should try akashic i think we should you know and we sent it there and they were they were thrilled with it and i you know the my editor ibrahim he sent me this kind of letter that uh it's the sort of letter you want to get from your future editor it's just it was wonderful he just totally got it and and it was it was great and and he you know in it's been nothing but a great experience working with them. Well, it feels like that letter must have been important because then you feel like there's a certain level of trust because this is like Absolutely. something that you've been making for so long and sending it out in the world. Right. Yeah. It uh, It is. And you never know who's going to get things and who's not going to, you know, because we had dealt with, there were a couple of other larger publishers that had... Uh, you know, it sort of nibbled, uh, you know, and they seemed interested and then we would have a talk and it was like, oh, you want this book to be something completely different. So or that's what I was going to ask. Did they want then, did they come to you requesting major changes or? Um, you know, it never got that far happily, but you can, you know, if you, you can sort of read the room, usually you can just kind of see that you have, you have a other, I, I, I guess I'm also of the mind that, you know, essentially Unless a book needs an enormous amount of work, uh, you know, and somebody sees something beautiful and genuine in there, but they need to, you know, it's... it's Like excavate something? Yeah, or, they need yeah. to excavate. I don't know if that many editors or publishers have that luxury anymore. Uh, you know, the Maxwell Perkins. Right. Uh, let's, let's uh, yeah, <laughs> let, let's uh, call this down from 3,000 pages to a workable uh, 400 or whatever. Uh, I don't think people have that, that option very much anymore so the books I think books tend to need to be in a, a pretty good shape when they get to an editor and an editor I think these days wants to look at something and, and like oh yeah this is pretty much here and uh, you know yeah there's a few things we can we can work on but uh, you know I think if a book has that many severe or you know big problems or whatever they're more likely to just pass on it, you know? it but it sounds like in the case of beautiful music it wasn't that it was more like maybe someone because you were talking earlier about uh, it's important to have someone connect with it to get it Absolutely, like what the book yeah. is up to sort of mm -hmm. and maybe they liked it but they were missing one part of it and so yeah, I think that happens. I think that happens a lot or people are, you know, and maybe that's the thing that I, that will put a book over the edge for, for an editor to like, yes, I, they're looking for, you know, like a real 
perhaps it's a personal, perhaps it's an emotional connection, perhaps mm-hmm. it's, or it's they're looking at and, and they, they think, yeah, well, this will sell, <laughs> you know, and sorry to, to think that, but I'm sure that's often on, on, you know, I think it has to be on, on an editor's mind, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah. Well, you have natural material in the, the, the region, um, Absolutely, yes. and you're not setting beautiful music in Detroit because there were like in you know, it seems like in the publishing industry for a little while, Detroit became like one where people wanted to have a book, like have some connection, have the Detroit name on it um, in some way. But all your all your books yes, are they're, are, they're, are um, Detroit in this area centric. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, for me, that was one of those things that I, I think was kind of a big thing in my writer life. When I realized that I, when I started writing about Detroit and the people in the area and, uh, you know, that's when things felt like they kind of came together for me. And it was, and I realized that, um, being from this place and I, uh, I, I'll be, I'd be interested to hear when this uh, era of Detroit, are you talking maybe right now about Detroit? Detroit is having kind of a moment of, of coolness, which is uh, a lot of Detroiters are not used to. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I think Detroit was one of those places where, you know, they, they weren't really, editors weren't really all that sure. They that anyone wanted to read about Detroit, I think. Um, I may be wrong about this. This was just my experience. But um, but for me, it was it was I, when I realized that being from where I'm from, the Midwest, being from Detroit specifically, was a gift. And it, it was a really something that could make my writing stand out a little bit. And I've said this before, and, and I, you know, I love work i love fiction with a strong sense of place and detroit has a lot a, a huge sense of place you you know people who are there and uh uh just being from there it it affects you and it makes you i think it really makes you who you are and it certainly did me and so when you were mentioning like finding this material um was that when you were writing secondhand a novel? Because um, this this is a novel that's set in a in a junk shop, is mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And so was this what or or did it really start maybe more with the short stories that you were writing that became part of the Lost Tiki Palaces of Detroit? Or do you mean the writing about Detroit, tending to write yes, about like, Detroit, like finding knowing that you were like this is what it feels right to be writing about, or this is what my consciousness returns to, or this sense yeah. of place oh, I, feels I think so. I, and, alive to me. Yes. On the and page. I think secondhand is probably, um, yeah, I think secondhand might be emblematic of at least my opinion about it. I think, you know, it's a lot about, uh, Use things, broken things, uh, things with patina, things that, and looking at objects and people and seeing, um, you know, something that other people might think is ugly and seeing the beauty in them and kind of subverting that. I, you know, that in, in a way, it's about Detroit too, because. You know, there's lots of people. I I would think that there's kind of a Detroit aesthetic that's built around in some ways, not for everyone by any means, but for 
having grown up in a city that winds up being perceived by the rest of the country as kind of broken or malfunctioning uh, or uh, deteriorating, I think it, it, you know, it sort of affects your own, I, I think, artistic tendencies, you know. So I know a lot of artists that, you know, that, that the brokenness of, uh, of, you know, what was going on in Detroit 20, 30 years ago or whatever, you know, influence them. And, you know, you, you see a lot of abandoned buildings and it, you know, you, you realize, okay, this is where I'm from. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's interesting. And, and I do think that, uh, it, it's part of what, what made, you know, me feel like being from where I'm from and writing about it was important and something I wanted and needed to do. And did you, um, Michael, have to leave ever? Did you, because we, you know, we haven't been talking a lot about all of like the whole story of your biography. Um, do, did you, did you leave the area? Did you go elsewhere? Because I feel like, I, I think you went to Wayne State University. Yes, I did. Um, but I'm not sure if it was for undergrad or for grad school. Both. Um, I, I did both uh, at Wayne State. So yes, I'm very connected to them. Yeah. And then after that, did you, did you, or did you stay in Michigan? I haven't been anywhere, T. No, no, okay. Let's just say it. Well, just I, as a I, quick I never note, left home. Big, okay. big in Italy. Super big in Italy. I'll throw that in for a second. But, but so you, but you didn't leave home. No, I, I never moved anywhere else. I mean, I've lived in the area my entire life. So, and that was one of those things that, again, I decided that, well, I could be either be ashamed of this or I could just embrace it and, uh, you know, I, I I like it there. I like I like being in the Detroit area. It's just feels like me. So I know it's I, home. It's home exactly. And I've had characters say things like that in in books. Somebody somebody says that in the Leisure Seeker. There's a discussion about Detroit, and and they just say you stay because it's home. And even when no one else understands that, they, you understand it, and that's enough. And so you have this this feeling of home for for Detroit and in the the region, and then the Midwest. I feel like it also you're expansive with this feeling, like you feel this sense of place and pride in this region as well. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I, I and you know people like to just think about Detroit as Detroit, but Detroit is Detroit is very interesting. I mean, it's midwestern, but it also has a lot of kind of southern ways to it as well and so it's a, a very interesting sort of amalgam uh, you know <laughs> that you would just find it but it's also very midwestern people are nice and uh you know they're friendly and it's a lot of the things you would think of the midwest but you know with some differences yeah um well let's let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Um today on the program Michael Sidorian is here. His novel Beautiful Music on the Table. Also we have The Leisure Seeker Secondhand. Um The Lost Tiki Palaces of Detroit. Um I'm T Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. <laughs>
welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Michael Zadorian is here in the studio. Beautiful music. Um, the song you just heard. Thanks for choosing the songs for today's program, oh, Michael. Oh, no. That was totally my pleasure. I, I, I am a... a a frustrated disc jockey. So anytime I get to choose the music or, uh, you know, do anything or talk about music on the radio is great fun for me. Um, well, you know what, anytime, if you want to come on down and be a DJ here, you can do it. I don't know don't, if the commute would be. Me, no, I'm not. I'm not. It's, a, it's an invitation. It's definitely wow. an invitation. All right. It can happen, Michael, if you want to make it okay. happen. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to, about this. You have to weigh the commute a little bit, with it, but it's not far. We know it's, it's in, we can make it inside of an hour, right? Yes. So, um, and so what we were just hearing then was Fleetwood Mac, right. um, which also has a role in the, the novel Beautiful Music. Right. Yes. Uh, there's a there's just a scene at the end where uh, all through the book, uh Danny's uh, mother pretty much hates rock and roll music, although she does uh, show a soft spot for um, Susie Quattro, which is uh, a, a famous Detroit rock and roll uh, musician, you know, a, from the, the from the seventies, and uh, you know, a, a young woman actually up there singing and uh, doing great. She's uh, like a Detroit legend as well. She pops up, and Danny's mom is kind of <laughs> cool with her. But that uh, Fleetwood Mac song, "Future Games." Um, she actually likes that song at the end, and it's kind of a little moment of connection between Danny and his mother uh, in a in a book where you know connections with his mother are kind of few and far between. So it's a she it's has a nice her moment. Own, her own big struggles. Yes, in this she story. does. Um, well, okay. Well, let's let's pivot here for a moment and talk a little bit about because we mentioned. Um, that you're big in Italy, <laughs> and and that has something to do with secondhand, right? Right. And, yes. You... Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a, a strange thing. Secondhand had been out probably five six years, and I was in the the middle of my usual. Uh, you know, long struggle in between getting novels published. There's nine years in between all all the novels, and it's usually been a, a struggle of you know finding a new agent, finding a new editor, finding a new publisher for all of them. They all have different agents, editors, and publishers. I don't know, T. It's just <laughs> no, no. I didn't mean that to sound like. I just, it just, it seems like every time, you know, it's always just been an enormous work. They've all been like a, getting a first novel published. So, in any case, uh, it was probably about six years into my usual struggle. I was probably, uh, probably in my depression uh, period of of that, and I got a little email. Uh, nothing was happening anywhere else in the my literary life. I got an email from Italy and someone just said you know asked me they were from a small publishing house like an independent publishing house in uh, 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 Milan and uh, we were wondering if the rights to your novel secondhand were available the Italian rights and at this point I was pretty sure that the American rights were probably available and uh, and I said yeah I think so you know so uh, they had read a little online and contacted me and uh, so I had uh, I think I had Norton send a uh, a copy of the book to them and they decided to publish it and it was very successful in Italy and I still I, I'm there they weren't even sure why because there there are not a lot of thrift stores or anything like that in Italy <laughs> you think when you think Milan 
No, you don't think thrift stores. No, it's not a, th- a thing you uh, think about. I, but it was it was really quite successful. And so r- shortly, you know, probably about a year later, uh, the Leisure Seeker got accepted by uh, HarperCollins. And by that time, they were totally on board. They were like, yeah, we would like to publish the Leisure Seeker too. And it came out like beautiful music too at almost the exact same time. And the Leisure Seeker was strangely and phenomenally successful in Italy. It was, uh, you know, if you look at the, the, uh, trailer for the, uh, the, the film, the leisure seeker, it'll say based on the bestseller. And I, I always say, I wish someone would have told America that, uh, but, uh, cause it was not a bestseller here. It was steady, but in, but in Italy, but in Italy. And, and, so they got to say it. And, and was that also, was it because of it's like the, the huge success in Italy that then actually led to the film because there's, yes. is it an Italian director? It is. A- yeah. My, and as it turns out, my, uh, my, uh, Italian editor, uh, uh, Claudia Tirola, um, she uh, she handed the book uh, off to the uh, Paolo Verzi uh, or one of his people and she basically got it into their hands and it was uh, that's and then the director decided that would be his first English language film so it was a, just a crazy series of events and uh, yeah and everyone over there is always so lovely to me I'm going to be going over there in a couple of weeks I did a huge tour when the Leisure Seeker came out I, you met Helen Mirren. Yeah, yes, I, I I did that. I went to the Venice Film Festival. It's all way more glamorous than I'm actually comfortable with, but I I did it anyways, despite how uncomfortable I felt. Tuxedo and Tuxedo all. Tuxedo and right? all. You've seen the photo, I I, I, I guess. And um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting journey with that book because it was just something that. You know, kind of grew out of a, a kind of, uh, a, you know, sort of a painful period in my life. And uh, my father was ill with Alzheimer's. And uh, my literary, again, once again, my literary uh, career was not going terribly well. And uh, so I just started to write something. I was very close to just quitting. And, and I just decided I was just going to write something I cared about and write something that I, you know, and have like zero expectations for. So, um, so that wound up being the leisure seeker and, and it, then this happened, (laughs) you know, so it is strange to think that, uh, you know, something like that can happen because it does change you. Uh, the way, you know, as a writer, when somebody makes a film of your book, it does kind of affect things. And in a, I think mostly in a positive way in that a lot more people read your book and, um, you know, and people all over the world are reading the book. Now there was like 15 new translations. Now I feel, I feel kind of braggy now. So, so, um, <laughs> yeah, woo! Uh, you no, know, so, awesome. and, um, and that, so it's wonderful. So I'm getting like the Japanese edition in the mail or the German edition or the Spanish edition. It's it's very cool. So so those will soon be on your bookshelf as neighbors. They already are. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. And then hopefully this also will mean that the next novel or like what will not been, be nine years from right, now. Yes, that, that's that, what I'm and hoping. And it won't that you need to go through this whole cycle of that's, like. That is what I'm hoping. That's going to happen. I, I Well, I, I hope so. But if it does take take nine years I'll I'll do it anyway but I just soon it didn't because you're a writer right yes and and so you'll keep writing 
Yes, there's a, a yeah. If I don't, I, I don't feel very well. So I, I kind of, uh, yeah, I have to. So Like to have, like, sort of uh, not be off kilter or so. Yes, exactly. You don't, I think, I think there's a lot of writers that feel the same way. You just don't feel like yourself. You, you feel, yeah, things are wrong. And, you, you know, I myself kind of go into a, a bit of a tailspin. But because uh, there was a period right before I quit my job where, I could not work. I, I I could not do my writing, and it uh, yeah, it really it really took me down, and that was why I wound up quitting my job just because I, I have no time to write, and I will figure something out. You know? Because of the pressures of yeah, your, 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 the job. day job yes. or the you had to yes, it was no longer part time. So it, it uh, so yeah, so it was it was good to leave, and then a few months later, I get this crazy news about the uh, the Leisure Seeker being made into a film. So and that can change everything. That's it kind of kind of it, it did, yeah. And, and so you also. Um, I think you did you have two showings of the film The Leisure Seeker as a benefit locally for the Alzheimer's Association Michael Yes we did that yeah it was it was uh, it was really nice uh, uh the Michigan Theater was was really into it they wanted to do it they had connections with the uh you know the, the Alzheimer's Association the Great here. Lakes chapter just yes, down the street it worked out perfectly Madison. it was really fun and uh Russ from over there and I we got up in front of everybody and had a little conversation Talked about the film, did some Q and A. It was it was great fun. Made a little money for the Alzheimer's Association and got to show the film. Uh, well, I know that it that would have probably meant the world to your dad. Um, I think, yeah, I, th- I think my mother uh, passed before the uh, before the book came out, before the Leisure Seeker came out, so she didn't really get a chance to read it. But but, did she, uh, know, but she knew you were working on it. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, she did, and I, I think I even uh, uh, you know I was laying the groundwork for warning her. <laughs> you know, like it's not you, but you know, there's some stuff that's kind of you. But you know, the and and this is something I, I always talk about with the autobiographical elements of uh which is sort of where we started which is uh you know i you know you may even start as a writer you may start in an autobiographical place but then those characters change and evolve and you start to understand what your book is truly about and that affects the direction of the characters and their personalities or whatever so you know even when things do start from an autobiographical place you know almost always they go somewhere very different and it's you know, it's it's an important. I think that's just I don't know. It's the way I write, and uh, I've I guess I've made my peace with it at this point. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Michael. Oh well, thank you so much for having me, T. This was really fun. Come back anytime. Oh well, we'll talk about that uh, radio show. <laughs> right. Exactly. Today on Living Writers, Michael Zadorian, beautiful music. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.
must have had the radio on. Do people really listen to this stuff? It's very popular. And that jingle's catchy. Sort of gets inside your head. Yes, and such sophisticated lyrics too. It's the main reason the station's popular. Wasn't that just the grooviest? This is your fave DJ Ray Dio bringing you frantic music on the medium wave. And here's the new hit from the Wonderwolves. Right, sorry, who did you say you are? I'm the Doctor. This is K9. What in the name of... Is that, is that a robot dog? Affirmative. Oh, it talks amazing. Yes, he's a lurcher. Mr. Dio, aren't you? Yeah, I'm not really Radio. That's my professional name. Radio. Analysis suggests an attempted exploitation of the ambivalence of language for humorous purposes. Sorry? He means it's a pun. It's supposed to be funny. Yeah, it, it is funny. I think it's funny. Isn't it funny? Negative. Do you really think these people can invade us over the radio? I do. That WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Jingle wasn't composed with any musical or aesthetic considerations. Catchy, though. That's because it contains a built-in hypnotic harmonic, ensuring anyone who hears it is compelled to listen. Transmit the beam. What's happening, Doctor? They're transmitting the Professor's detector beam out into space. And once it makes contact with their invasion...